We are uh, <clears throat> answering another question today, at least that's the goal. And uh, like we did with this first question, um, there, this question comes in lots of different formats. You can ask it uh, in numerous ways. And here are a few ways you might ask this very question. How does God redeem the mess? How does he take a messy situation that I'm in how does he take a horrible thing that I'm experiencing and somehow bring good out of it? Does he? And if so, how does he do it? We ask that question in lots of different ways. Here are a couple other examples. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or how does God take a crappy situation and turn it into good? Or why does God allow us to go through difficulty? I mean, all of us have asked that question at some point, right? Or we perhaps will in the future. And that is, God, why, why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? Why would you let me go through this? Or how could you let so-and-so walk through that difficult time? And what do you want me to get out of this? Is there anything, any good that's supposed to come out of the hurt that I'm in? And we know that pain is kind of one of those inevitable facts of life. I started listing some of the things that we go through, whether it's physical suffering, psychological hurt, social rejection, loneliness, criticism, failure, divorce, persecution. I mean, the list could go on and on. And some of us experience more pain than others. And for some people around the world, pain is an everyday reality, an experience they can't escape, something they can't ever get out from underneath. C.S. Lewis made this statement about pain. He said, try to exclude the possibility of suffering and you find that you, you have excluded life itself. If you try to just exclude suffering, inevitably you exclude life itself. This week, it was Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, I was preparing to go to crusade and speak Wednesday night, and it was about two in the afternoon, and I got a call from a friend of mine in Indiana, and uh, he told me that one of my youth group kids, a kid that I has spent time with in children's ministry, uh, we took him to camp a couple years, junior high, I was with him every week in junior high, and then through high school, worked as his youth pastor or one of the youth pastors, and just poured into this kid and loved on this kid through some pretty, pretty tough times. And uh, on Tuesday night, uh, he took his life. He's 22, and um, decided that the things he was going through and what he was experiencing wasn't worth it anymore. And so pain sets in. It doesn't matter where you're at in life, you run into experiences like this. I mean, that afternoon, I looked up pictures of him from youth group days and looked at his Facebook page and cried a little bit and just remembered the way that God worked in his life and pain, it comes, it's always around, it's always near us. And so we want to try to answer that question today, but Obviously, you know this is a question that you could talk about for weeks on end and still only scratch the surface. So our goal is not to give you the be-all, end-all answer to this question, 
nor is it our goal today to come up, give you three points in a poem, and have you all walk out and go, oh, that was really great. That cleared up everything. Okay, that, that's not what we're shooting for, all right? Instead, what we're shooting for is this. We're going to, I'm going to call up um, a young lady to share her story. She's going to share her testimony of how God has walked her through life and through numerous times where she has faced difficulty. And my goal or my hope is that in the midst of hearing her story, you might recognize the truths and the principles that relate to your story. See, all of us have a story. We're all in the midst of living it. And for some, it feels like our story is dramatic, or for others, it might seem like a, just a simple story. But the reality is that every one of us has a story, and it's a story worth hearing. And we're going to take one story, and we're going to ask God to use that story to reveal or inform or enlighten or encourage us in the midst of our story. And so maybe there's a truth or a principle that God takes out of this and speaks into your life and says, whatever you're in the midst of, whatever pain you presently feel, whatever thing you experienced years ago that's kind of still lingering with you, may this story speak into your story. So that's the hope of today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite Jean up now. Jean, why don't you come and get situated. Uh, we're going to do this kind of interview format. So what's going to happen is I'm going to ask some questions. John's going to respond. We'll kind of go back and forth for a couple purposes. One, to keep the uh, morning moving along. But two, uh, just to make sure John is at ease and uh, comfortable. John's been a part of our community here at New Community for a while. And um, so, John, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell them how long you've been in Spokane and kind of what you do here. And then uh, we'll, we'll jump into your story. Um, again, my name is Jeanne. I've uh, been here in Spokane for most like, this is my third year. And uh, I teach at the Spokane Public Schools. So I have five schools that I'm teaching at right now. And uh, I just enjoy the kids. I do middle school all the way to high school. Um, yeah. Now, um, you notice she's got a pretty sweet accent. And, um, <laughs> And so you might be asking yourself, where did you get that accent? I don't think it comes from Spokane. Um, so, so how did tell us where you grew up, and then tell us a little bit about your family. Uh, I was born and raised in Rwanda, and uh, with my family, I came from a family of ten, and uh, came to the United States around like 2000. Go, you know, I usually go back and forth, so. Um, my family used to be Christian family. My, both my parents, um, their main focus was on education, and they taught us how to respect others. They were just like humble family. They did a lot of activities from outside, uh, just helping people with you know, different needs. For example, my uh, mom, she used to pay uh, school fees for families who could not afford those um, to go to school. Um, they were just a very loving family and caring and just humble as well. So Jean grew up in uh, this family of 10 in Rwanda where uh, her family was a Christian family focused on faith, focused on uh, the community, really seeking to meet needs of people in the community, providing education, making sure that uh, each of their kids was 
uh, educated. And so kind of picture this just beautiful family, a great setting, growing up, enjoying life, and then everything started to change for you. What was the culminating event that started to change for not just you, but for all the people in Rwanda? Uh, in Rwanda in 1994, uh, there was a genocide, and then the genocide actually started uh, in April, which is like this month. Um, we had a lot, I mean, within like 100 days, millions of people just died in that short time of period. So I lost, you know, a few of my, uh, almost some of my family members. Um, and uh, it was just horrible. It was such a horrible experience, but I know God was, God was there working with me. I know a lot of you are familiar with the Rwandan genocide. Uh, maybe you've seen Hotel Rwanda, or what's the other movie? Uh, Sometimes in April is a documentary on Rwanda. It's a very good one to watch because it just documents the history and what went on. Mm -hmm. If you can watch that, it, yeah. it will educate you more. Yeah, you've told me that one is pretty realistic it and is. communicates very clearly the progression of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, describe why there was attention and what created this genocide? It was a mo we have uh, ethnic groups in, in a, within the country. So we had like, uh, during that time, it was sort of like a uh, ethnic cleansing. We had a one group of people just, you know, trying to wipe out the other uh, group, you know, the, Tut the Hutus just killing the Tutsis. And it just, within like three months again, uh, people took it really harshly. They would kill, you know, kill babies and, Grandparents, people were like in, a, in their 90s, 100 years old, those people were killed as well. I mean, describing how they killed them, it was, I, I cannot describe it to you. The tools that were used were just um, mainly machetes, uh, any kind of sort of like tool, so such as like baseball bats and things like that. So it was, it was horrible. So the genocide has begun and it's kind of sweeping the country murders are taking place, killings all over the place. And um, so let's, let's begin to kind of walk into her story a little bit. I mean, up to this point, life is good and she's enjoying it and things are stable for her and her family and then the genocide begins. Uh, so as you, as you hear her story, as you listen, obviously um, there's gonna be some dramatic pieces to it, uh, some things that are pretty uh, difficult to hear. Um, but understand in the midst of it, there's going to be some really neat principles, I think, that God draws out. So chaos, pandemonium is happening. You get um, kind of corralled into this uh, real small room. Your uncle's there, a bunch of people. Describe the room to us. Describe what's happening. And, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, at this point, it was just like this tiny room, and I cannot tell you the numbers of people who were there just looking for refugee. Uh, I remember being under the bed, almost like this, uh, the size of a king bed, but we had almost like 20 people just there. Uh, I remember kind of leaning forward uh, to protect my little brother, uh, my little sisters. These little ones were, you know, twins, three-year-olds. Um, I mean, you imagine people are just sort of like stuck on top of each other and. You know, I'm trying to protect them so they can at least like breathe because there was no space at all. Um, my uncle happened to come by, um, you know, looking for refugee as well, and uh, he was sort of like shaken, sort of scared, 
and I have, I mean, I could imagine, because I, I could hear, you know, bombs, grenades, things going outside, and hear people screaming. You imagine just somebody's about to take your life. You obviously have this sort of, right, you scream for your life, and people begging God, and you could hear those things. So I would, I expected him to sort of, like, behave that way. But then he started calling me. He said, Jean, I have something to tell you. And I said, okay, then tell me. I wanted to just get, done with and um, kind of went back and forth and he's like uh, I'll tell you and he's shaking and for the first time my uncle I mean he used to hug me hug some of you know the family members but this time he just sort of like squeezed me to the point I couldn't even breathe and I said them what's going on with him then he went on and he told me that he just he have just seen my mom he's like I've seen your mom so I sort of sort of you know, as a nine-year-old, I was excited. My mom is around then, you know, that's a good news. Um, and he, he went on and he said, well, your mom is dead. That's the news he, um, he told me. He said, I've, I've just seen her. She's, um, he described the place where she was, um, but he said, I want you to know that your little brother, who was just like three, uh, three weeks old, is uh, you know, still around. Uh, if you want to go save that little baby, go and, and save him. So she's nine years old. She just hears from her uncle that her mom uh, is dead. And uh, he describes where she's at because his, her mom was carrying around a three-week-old child. And basically, your uncle said, if you want to save your brother, you should go now and find your mom. And so that's what you did. So describe what happened. So I'm at this place, and uh, I mean, I don't know how many people have, I mean, on TV you see like people, that dead people, but this was real. I stepped into this area where he took me. Uh, I'm digging through bodies, just trying to find a woman that at least like was wearing the same clothes as my mom and looking for a baby because I was expecting the, this little infant to be crying at least. And I'm digging through those people. Some of them are just completely dead. Some of them are you know, halfway and they're asking for things. They're like, oh, please help me. It's sort of like grabbing me. I had this feeling of just like stepping in hell in a way because I just, it was real. That was the moment I was just, I was so scared that I didn't know whether somebody would come by and just you know, take my life as well. And uh, I went from this area to the end of it and I just couldn't find my mom. She was like a very light-skinned lady and little did I know that after losing so much blood, her skin color would turn. And uh, I finally found the clothes and then, then I started, I, I got closer. And then my little brother as well, like, the little infant, somebody have just came and you know sliced, sliced him in pieces. The blood was so fresh that I just, it felt like it was just like about 15 minutes ago when they you know took his life as well. So you you find your mom and she's in this long line of people, uh, many of which are dead, some just about to die, kind of calling out to you, grabbing you. You make your way down and then you find your brother. Um, so now, there's pandemonium going on. Um, you just realize you lost your mom and your brother. You have your two twin sisters. You kind of go back to the place where they are. Your other family members are scattered. You don't know where they are. You don't know where dad is. 
What, what began to happen next? Uh, I remember being at my auntie's house because she was, um, her husband came and he just said, oh yeah, we'll, I'll kill you guys, get out of the house. And that's, to me, that was like a sort of like shocking news because you expect like your auntie or your uncle to protect you. Um, but that's not what I, that's not the response that I received from, that, from him. He said, he started taking people out, then I stayed in and he said, get out or I'll kill you because he had already like, started killing you know, many people um, during that time. So I, I know most of you guys, you probably do camping outside. I have never slept outside in my whole entire life. So when he sent me out, it was like three in the morning and uh, we slept into this like cornfield, um, my, me and my little uh, twin sisters. April month in Rwanda is one of the months that it rains nonstop. So it's raining, it's wet, we just like, we, still, we had just, it was the dirt all over ourselves and it happened that, that night, my, um, like three in the morning, I, I heard a family coming in. I saw these three guys coming into this uh, field and I was so scared so I didn't say anything to them and I heard one of them calling my little brother once he said his name, I said, oh, these guys, maybe they're just hiding as well. So let me just, um, they continue kind of getting closer to me. Uh, the minute they were there, they were just, um, those were my brothers. So now I have my older brother and two little brothers, six kids in that same field. All right, so six kids are in this From field. And you're trying to stay quiet with two little three-year-olds, which isn't going very well. Um, you told me that uh, you would like take them and go, okay, go hide in these bushes, and they'd go, what about the snakes? And they were all freaked out, and so they'd want to like stay with you, and, and you're nine, and you're, you're walking around with kind of your, your brothers and your sisters. Yes. At this point, still don't know where dad is, still, I mean, you haven't seen him for how long now? Week, almost like a week and a half. Okay, week and a half, kind of on your own, trying to figure out what to do with your brothers and sisters. No dad in the picture for a week and a half. You're in this field, and then you see this tall man. That's most likely your dad, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us about what happened there. This time, um, we were, by the time we were walking, this man who came and he was just like, he had blood all over himself. He had a machete in one hand and he had a, uh, another tool in his hand which he was using to kill people. So he stopped us and we are just like in line, six kids. The minute he put one of my brothers down, I remember peeing on myself because I just like, I was so scared and knew that was it. That was um, the time that we'll be alive. And uh, I remember just like sitting there when I saw the prayers on the list of prayers, my mom used to tell us like pray for anything. If you believe in God, I mean, if you have faith, just use it. God will answer your prayers. I started praying and I said, please God, blind this man that he doesn't even see that we were right in front of him. And uh, for some reason he got, you know, by the time he was raising the machete, he, got, he gets you know, distracted. He runs after somebody else, and then he left us. And then I told my brothers, I said, you know what, I will not, we, I can, we cannot afford to have uh, a family of six dying. So my, I, told, I told my brother, go your way, and then I'll go my way. And um, the other incident is by the time I- Pause there real quick. Okay, so just a quick recap. Um, 
they divide the family up now. So your brother went that way with some, and then you went with your sisters. And um, I remember you telling me the story of how, like, you were first in line, and he said, okay, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to kill you first. And then you go, okay, and you ran to the back of the line. I'm going the back. And I'm then, sorry. like, your brother was standing there, he was next, and he ran to the back of the line. They kind of played this, like, game of running around for a minute. And then, all of a sudden, in the midst of that, as you pray, distraction comes, the man takes off, and all six of you remain. Mm-hmm. At that moment, what kind of promises were you making to God? What vows were you? Remember you talked about kind of some of the things you were saying to him? It's just like I told God, I said, you know, uh, at this time, it's like you know he's on your side. You know he's there. You know he, the, his presence is just right by your side because, you know, what distracted this man, you cannot tell me that it wasn't God. It was, I mean, I felt real horrible that somebody else's life has to go, then I'm saved. But, it, you know, I knew I was praying and I'm asking him, I want to see your hand working in my life. And I want to see your miracles. I know you can, you know, protect us. I know you are here. Um, so we went on and um, remember with my dad. Yeah, so tell us about your dad. Uh, before that, I... Uh, I remember just being so, I was exhausted, and then I, I say, you know, at the same time, I'm praying to be alive, and then at the same time, I feel so exhausted. I mean, you can imagine living in the bushes for weeks, weeks, after weeks, after weeks, you know, you have no food, you're wearing the same clothes. Uh, it was just horrifying. You are so scared. You, you know, I walked days and nights just trying to hide into different places. Um, so now I came to this family that I knew that was used to be my father's friend, but they had a son who was actually killing, so I went to him because I felt like he can kill us. Because the relationship we had with my dad, he probably kill us easily. Instead of cutting us in small pieces, he probably like, you know, maybe one, you know, very quick, easy. Um, and then I feel like I took myself there. And then once I got there, this lady told me, she said, you know what, I just saw your dad. Your dad was here. He had already, like, he had a wound on his head. Obviously, I don't know, he probably got shot and, or something happened to him. And then as a little kid, I'm just going, okay, if my dad was around here, I am going to find him. So I ran around trying to find my dad because I felt like even if I have to die, I would rather die with my dad. Um, felt like he had to protect me in, you know, in ways or even if he wouldn't, like, I just want to make sure that I die with him. Um, the minute he was, um, I remember see, um, so I heard a lot of guys just running, these, like, militia guys with, with the tools just screaming, and then that's when I jumped into, like, the plantation, banana plantation, and uh, I, I was hiding my little sisters under the, those, like, leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw this man coming sort of like towards me from the other side, but very close, as the more he's walking closer to me, I was able to see that it was my dad. This guy screamed, the tall man, which is like the description they gave the Tutsis anyways. So when he walked, first I was like, oh my gosh, this guy just better sort of like lean down because they can see, if I can see him, the people around him will be able to see him because he passed like the length of the, uh, these, uh, cornfield. So they got hold of him, grabbed him, and um, most of you guys play, have played soccer. They started like, sort of like, kicking him. 
funny guy would just <laughs> would push him on one side, the other one pulls him. And the minute like, they actually raised the machete and cut him, that's the time I just sort of like lost it. Then I fainted. But I remember just having the courage of just getting up because I wanted to see. I really wanted to see what happened to him and the end of it. And I, want this, that I wanted to go and say goodbye to his body. I remember walking, um, walking in the street where his blood was so fresh. And then I put my hands down, sort of like, because I felt like I had to say goodbye, and then put my hand in it, and I'm grabbing it, and my little sisters, they're saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? I mean, these are three-year-old kids, and they're screaming, I want my mom, I want my dad, but little did they know that was the blood of their father that I was. So at that time, I, I never stopped praying. I never stopped praying. I continued going on just because I knew God would do something. Sorry. It's all right. So you just witnessed uh, your dad being killed. You've got your sisters with you. And um, I'll speed up the story a little bit. Um, so now there's confusion. You're thinking, okay, how am I going to provide for my sisters? Um, I don't know who to trust. I don't know where to go. And so at this point, um, you do what any good nine-year-old would do and say, well, let's go to the mayor of the town and see what he has to say. So you go to the mayor, and the mayor says, um, well, let's put you with this person, and they'll take care of you. What you didn't realize is that instead of putting you with a friend, he actually put you with a foe, a killer. Mm -hmm. And so he puts you in the home of someone who will most likely kill you. Um, and he's going out every day on these raids and killing innocent people and then coming back. And you're sweeping his house and making food and doing like kind of like a servant for a little bit in his home. Um, in the midst of that, um, some crazy stuff was happening. Um, and he, he threatened numerous times to kill you. Explain, explain that to us a little bit. Well, many times he said, uh, Jean, my first time when I met him, he said, oh yeah, just, uh, we are sort of like, kind of sort of tired, but we'll kill you in 15 minutes and go and pray and uh, once you're done, we'll give you 15 minutes and then come back, we'll come back and we'll kill you. So I'm looking at the time and I'm going like, oh, oh 15 minutes, was nine, nine minutes, 10 minutes and then you just go on. By that time, he said, um, they said, well, they changed their mind. They said, we'll kill you tomorrow. But this is the time I really made a vow with God. I said, God, I know you will protect me, and I know you can do something. I told him, I said, I've seen both my parents, um, you know, dying. I've seen my little brother. I've seen my, obviously, I've seen my uncles, a few of my uncles, my aunties, and I said, I have not seen any of my other brothers and sisters. Uh, I mean, you remember, I mean, coming from a family of 10, I didn't see any of them besides the little one. I said, God, if you protect them and you protect me until the end of this, I'll praise you, I'll glorify you, 
I praise your name, and I will never forget you. I will stand in front of people and testify how good you are, how you are a God of miracles. And uh, this guy said, well, we're not killing you tonight. We'll kill you tomorrow. Every day, like Russ said, it was every day, come in and go do his daily activities, killing other people, but I, I was home. Yeah, so he would come home and he would say, um, all right, killed a bunch of people today and you're next and we'll cut, kill you sometime tonight. And there was a period where you even said, if you're gonna kill us, do it now, but kill my sisters first, mm -hmm. then kill me, because if you kill me first, I can't guarantee what will happen to my sisters. And so you went through this period where every day you're thinking, this could be it. And he kept kind of holding that over your heads. Um, so now we'll speed up a little bit. Um, obviously, we're, we're jumping sections of time to give you a picture of, of the whole story. And so now um, God has been protecting you in the midst of his home, and he's been providing for you. And now this man wants to take you to the Congo. And so he's, he's done so much killing that now people are starting to kind of come after him. And so he wants to flee, and he takes you, um, but leaves your sisters, right? He, they went elsewhere? Yeah, he took them someplace else. Yeah. And so you don't know where your sisters are. It's you, and you're heading to the Congo. Tell us about that, that whole story and then how God was present with you. At this time, um, so we walked... The, I mean, imagine like walking from Spokane to Seattle and just making a few more turns and going back and forth. It, that's how long, I mean, it took about like almost like three months walking every day, sleeping outside. And uh, so by the time we were just going from where we are in Rwanda, we took, he, um, they gathered few other group of the Tutsi that they found there. There were 25 of us. I was the 23rd in line. So they killed the first one in, you know, in line, 20 second. I'm standing there, I'm, I was next. And there was a lady who came out of nowhere. She just like stood in front of them and she said, why are you, kill, you know, killing your own people? What's wrong with you? This is, my, this is my daughter. I'm looking at her, I'm going like, uh, I have no idea who this woman is. I don't know who she is. And then so these people, they said, okay, you know what, don't say anything. They told me not to say anything. They told this lady not to say anything. Um, they separate us. So during that time, you had to carry like an ID, identity card that had like where you were born, um, your, your age, your name, uh, and so forth. All the information you need on your ID card, will, so the parents will have their kids' information in that identity card. When they asked me what my name was, I told them, I said, my name is uh, Umutoni. Uh, Jean. This, in this lady's identity card, she had Omutoni Jean as her daughter. And then they matched the age from distance. So they brought us back together and then they found out all the information she gave them was the same. And the minute that I was standing there, I am shaking at this time because I, I don't know who she is. She's claiming that she was my mom. This most beautiful woman that I have ever experienced, like seen with my own eyes. And I'm trying to hold on on her. I said, I want to go with you. And she said, my child, go with these people. God will protect you. I will be with you all the way. And she disappeared. 
right in my face. She just like disappeared. Never saw her again. I ran all over the place trying to find her and never saw her. And that, to me, that was just an angel. Mm. So 22 people in a row, it comes to you, the 23rd, this mystery lady comes out of nowhere, walks up, claims that you're her daughter. Everything matches the way she says your name, everything. She says, my child, hugs you, stay with these people, and then is gone. I'll be with you. I'll save you. Mm -hmm. I'll be on your side. And that I cannot explain to anyone. Because when I told them my last name, uh, Omotoni, that was not official, my, that was not my official last name. That was only the name my dad ever called me at home. Nobody, not even my brothers and sisters would call me Omotoni. Because it means like belonging to your own dad. That's the only name he called me. So I came up with that, and that's exactly what was in her identity right. card. It, God is just, right. God is amazing. So it wasn't just your name, it was your nickname that really nickname. not many people knew at all. Not at all. Now, one of the things that's so unique about this story is that obviously we can speculate that that's an angel, the presence of God coming and being and protecting and providing for you. And while God comes into the midst of our pain, not always in such dramatic ways, the reality is this, that no matter what it is you're going through, he is in your presence. He's with you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And so regardless of what you're going through, just like in this situation with Jean, that he's there. He shows up. Sometimes just the right time. It feels like he could have shown up a lot earlier, but in this case, right in the nick of time. And that's the way he does it with us so often. And so this man, we'll speed this story up again. This man takes you to the Congo. You get to the Congo. While you're in the Congo, you're not there very long, and you overhear a conversation between this man, your captor, and another individual from the Congo. And they are bartering for your sale. And so the, the gentleman sells you to this other man, and he's coming for you the next morning to pick you up and to take you. So that night, in the middle of the night, you go, mm-mm. I'm not going to be sold. This isn't going to happen. So describe, describe what happened. That night, I got up. Uh, I went to bed with everybody else. And then I just waited until they sort of like falling asleep. Three in the morning, I got up and I started running. Did not know exactly where I was going, but I knew I was returning back to Rwanda. So I ran as much as I could. It was three in the morning. And here, like, you know, dogs outside and just barking. But I just. I didn't even have shoes on. I just ran until like I was almost out of my breath. But then when, once I felt like I was a little safe, then I sat down and I just praised God because I, I was like, he is going to be with me. He is going to work with me. Uh, I mean, in a nine-year-old working for three months by yourself, uh, it was one of the, you cannot describe it. Uh, I would just wait like right here or sit in the bushes while other kids, on you know, with their families returning back to Rwanda as well. And these little kids noticed where I was, they would hide, the family would feed them, and then they would start hiding food under their clothes and come and feed me. They say, oh, you want this? They bring me water, they bring me any kind of food the parents gave them. Um, or just my little, I can't tell you who, you know. God so used them in a way that they did what they had to do. 10 years old, 
Let's put it in uh, geography terms. So at 10 years old, you're in Seattle, which we'll call the Congo for this moment. And you travel as a 10-year-old by yourself over the course of a couple months with no shoes, no food, nothing, from there to Spokane. It'd be about the equivalent, maybe a little bit further in distance. Um, and as you're walking, you have nothing, and these little kids in every little village or town would find you, ask where mom and dad was, and then provide for you. When, when you were experiencing that, what kept coming to your mind about God? I knew that God was there. I knew that no matter how bad the situation will be, he will be on your side. No matter, I just cannot explain to you. My faith was strong enough that I knew even if it get worse than it was, that God was going to be on my, by my side. I just knew it. Mm -hmm. I felt it. So. Now you get back to Rwanda, and uh, you don't know where to go. So you go back to the orphanage, and you think, this, this would be where I should head. You head into the orphanage. Now what happens? Um, I, when I went back to the orphanage home, I, uh, I saw my twin sister. She's coming from school. I mean, you imagine like she's like somewhere on the other side, walking by on the on the street, the same street I'm walking, with about the point to me, and she's looking at me like, okay, this is a ghost. Why am I seeing things? This is not Jean, and I'm thinking the same way. This is not Jeanette. There's no way she's alive. But then I was, I remember I said, God promised me that He will save and protect my family. I have to believe this is her. For a long time, I didn't want to touch her. I didn't want to get closer to her. But it got to the point I said, let me give it a try. And I went and I hugged her and she hugged me. And she said to me, she said, oh, I have, something, I have a surprise for you. I've got something to show you. She took me right inside the orphanage home and uh, my brothers and sisters were there. So praise God. So you get reunited with your family. You're all in the orphanage. You're kind of thinking, Okay, now I can stay here. Life is gonna, you know, there'll be a time to recover. Okay, good. And then they inform you that because you're 10, you can't stay at the orphanage. So many of the little kids were passing away at such a quick rate and they had no room to keep people or to feed anyone that they said anyone over 10 kind of back onto the streets. As you were heading out to go back on the streets, a lady comes and says, I'll take her and she could come work for me in my house. And so you thought again, great, a room to stay, food to eat, a job to have, making a whopping $6 a month, this will be amazing. And uh, it wasn't quite what you were bargaining for. Tell us um, what that situation was like. Uh, this lady happened to just be the most abusive. Uh, I mean, like you imagine being 10 years old and you feel like, okay, now I have a mom. Now I can treat her as a mother. Uh, felt more safe just knowing that I have a family now, but she abused me that I just can't go into details explaining to you how um, How I felt she would beat me and she would, She did the most horrible things to me that I cannot explain to you, but then I I kept praying I said God you have to give me a family So you're in this situation and um, you're feeling hurt, you're feeling lost, 
And the thing that stood out to me as we've gone through your story several times is that uh, God kept revealing to you the need to give forgiveness. Talk a moment about forgiveness. Um, I remember as a little kid, my mom uh, talked about forgiveness a lot. And uh, she said, once you have to cleanse your sins before you ask God for anything, so I felt like I cannot forgive those people who have taken the lives of the people that I love the most and love them. And in the Bible says you have to love your enemies. And I said, for me to love, to be able to love those people who killed my family, even someone who killed my dad who was like very next door, I said, for me to be able to smile or shake his hand and say hi, I have to forgive him. For me to love him, I have to forgive him. I have to forgive this lady. So I started praying and asking God to, for me to be able to forgive those people. And God gave me that. I was able to forgive and love and, and care for those people. Yeah, There's incredible, incredible power in forgiveness. And I know that some of us, as we go through pain or difficulty, especially when someone does something to us, one of the last things we want to do is forgive. It's one of the last things we want to do, and yet it's the thing, the only thing that really begins to bring healing. That healing started to be experienced because she was willing to say, you know what, regardless of the fact that you're my enemy, I choose to forgive, I choose to love, and while that's not an easy or a light thing, it was a necessary thing, and you felt God communicating to you over and over that you need to forgive. And, and you did that. I did. Yeah, yeah. He helped me do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's, let's kind of start to wrap up here. Um, I mean, we could obviously talk for hours and hours about the story and about what God has continued to do in you. Uh, tell me, how, how do you think God has begun to redeem this story for you? Um. For me, it's, you know, once you've seen God, once you've seen like how great he is and how he does miracles, you just can't question anymore. Um, I have, my faith has, I mean, grown so much that I can't, I know that in any, at any point, there's a friend that I can call on, there's someone that I can depend on, that usually I tend to like, sit and pray for people. I used to sit and fast and pray for people. Uh, so God has just made my uh, faith um, just amazing. I believe in him to the point that I know anything in him is possible, anything. Whether you are going through any sort of like hard time, tough time, whatever it is, uh, God is able to be on your side. Just let him take control of your life and he'll make everything okay. Hopefully, as you have been hearing this story, um, several truths are kind of coming to the surface. I know for me, as I continue to hear it, um, one of the things that stands out so much is that God is with us in the midst of whatever we go through. And sometimes, I mean, you've recounted several times where you felt like you couldn't sense his presence, and then he made it so clear that he was with you. And the reality is it's true for us that his presence, regardless of what we're going through, is constantly with us, where he has promised to never leave or forsake. There's also a clear message of the power of forgiveness in this story. 
I mean, I was talking to someone in between services, and they, they said, I, man, I can't imagine walking through what you walk through. And, and I said, if I did, I'd be an absolute mess. And yet God is strengthening you, sustaining you, encouraging you, giving you a hope and a future, and it's because of forgiveness. It's because of the power that forgiveness holds. And, um, and then I think this understanding that regardless of what you're going through, we, we get this false idea that God says he's going to work out everything for the good, and that the good means that everything will always end with a good, quick resolution, that everything will go your way, you know, all of the problems you have will be wiped clean, there'll be no even history to them, I mean, it, but that's not reality. Reality is the rest of the verse, which says, whatever it is you're going through, God will work it for the good to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of what you're going through, if the end goal is that you look a little bit more like Jesus at the end of the day, then it will be good. And so being able to walk through a situation, regardless of what it is, you can walk through it with hope. Let's do me a favor. Um, we're we're going to shift gears here for a moment, but can you just thank Jeanne for sharing her story with us this morning? Now, Jean has a family still in Rwanda, and um, she and Paul are uh, connected to an organization over there that does some amazing work. So Paul's going to come up just for a couple minutes here, and he's going to real quick share with you a little bit about the organization um, that they're involved with and maybe how you could support uh, or encourage people uh, through this organization. All right, Paul? Thank you, Russ. Thank you, folks. Uh, good afternoon. Um, just want to share a little information with you. Uh, as, as Jean was bravely fighting for her life and the lives of her little sisters, uh, an estimated one million innocent men, women, and children were slaughtered around her, um, as we, we learned in that short time period. Uh, these folks whose only crime were, was being born uh, suffered under the most relentless uh, cloud of evil, as I call it. Um, that same time, uh, the UN estimates that around between 250,000 and 500,000 young girls and women were savagely raped. Um, of those raped, 70% contracted HIV. Uh, the, the militias at the time used the rape as a tool of genocide so it could go on uh, causing uh, uh, the Tutsi women pain and death. Um, but um, prior to that genocide, HIV wasn't a huge problem for the Tutsi people in particular. Um, but of those rape, uh, 20,000 births ensued. Um, so of course these evil uh, and tragic events left behind a truly devastated Rwanda, especially for the Tutsi people. Which brings me to the question, what can we do? Well, Jean and I work for an organization called MASADA. MASADA is a, a nonprofit that uh, specifically 
helps orphans and widows of the Rwandan genocide. Um, and there's definitely a need. Uh, Jean is just one of 80,000 orphans uh, of the Rwandan genocide. And many of these orphans not only lost their parents, but their aunts, uncles, cousins, leaving behind uh, no family to look after them. So most of these children live alone and have a laundry list of problems, uh, a couple, uh, couple pages longer than we have, I'm sure. Um, but they still maintain the desire to become educated and to provide a better life for themselves and for the siblings that they, they look after and oversee. Um, so that's where Masada comes in. Masada is assisting over 100 uh, young people to attend local primary and se uh, secondary school in Rwanda. Uh, school in Rwanda doesn't work like it does here in the US. Uh, you have to pay to go. So um, this organization has um, sustains these 100 or so kids in doing so. They also provide a new science lab, which helps uh, to improve the quality of education received by the students there. Um, this is one of the reasons why we chose Masada. They focus on assisting these uh, innocent victims and acquiring a set of tools that will help improve their lives forever. Uh, making a simple donation of 20 bucks provides these children with the support and means to complete a half a year's education. That's all expenses included. So literally the equivalent of a couple pizzas um, will assist in providing an education that will change these kids' lives forever. Um, an investment that I think is, is completely Christian. Um, Masado also reaches out to some of the 50,000 widows of the orphan, uh, the Rwandan genocide. Um, Rwanda, um, Masada, I'm sorry, works to uh, basically help these, these, uh, these widows help themselves. And what I mean by that is they, right now at the moment, they're, they're helping uh, widows to, well, they're supplying them with, with beehive equipment so they can produce honey and sell on the market, sustain themselves and uh, their children, put their children through school and other orphans they have adopted. Um, this is why we work with Masada. They help these dis distressed widows help themselves, and I think that's a, a cause very deserving. Um, and uh, just to let you guys know, you, you too can help out. Uh, just five or ten dollars goes directly to uh, uh, sewing machines for the, these women to sew and to be useful in the uh, in the community, and uh, as I mentioned, the, the beehive equipment. Um, so in closing, I know that uh, oftentimes it's difficult to relate to people that uh, are from a different country. They have a different political system, different culture, different language altogether. But we here in the U.S. have more in common with the Rwandan people than we think, um, as we heard from Jean. Despite the overwhelming and unthinkable hardship, these survivors still maintain a strong belief in God, as she demonstrated. In fact, over half the country uh, worships God in a Christian context. So unfortunately, the past is the past, and we will never be able to right the wrongs of that massive genocide or eradicate the world of all evil. But at least today, we can assist in the lives of those unfortunate victims and help to provide a Christian response in their healing. Thank you. Let me just wrap up with a couple quick points. Uh, one, if you want to support that organization, both Paul and Jean will be out in the foyer and 
just $40 for a whole year's education for a child is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, so feel free to head out, talk with them, not just about the organization, but about who they are and about their story. Um, hopefully today, in the midst of hearing a story, God spoke into your story, reminded you of certain truths, and uh, hopefully um, you were able to relate in some way to what it is that she experienced. My challenge for you is also this. Everyone in here has a story, and it's a story worth hearing. And I think a lot of times we come in, sit down next to someone, get up, say hi, sit back down, leave a little bit later, and never really capture the story. I mean, there are people like Jean in our midst for over a year at New Community, and we go, I didn't know she even had a story, and especially one like that. So take time when you're here on Sundays to get to know people and go, what's your story? And now it might not be quite that dramatic. But nevertheless, it's a story that God is forming and will continue to form in you. So let me pray. And as I pray, both Paul and John are going to make their way into the foyer. If you want to spend some time meeting them, greeting them, getting to know them a little bit, that'd be great. Let's pray. God, we are so blessed that no matter what story we are in the midst of living, that you are in it with us, that you are present with us, that you hear our story, live our story with us, and uh, speak into that story. God, we, we offer up these requests that we had on the video. We offer up our very lives to you and want our stories to be ones that reflect your goodness and your greatness, even in the midst of pain. God, we know we can't answer real simply the question, how do you redeem the mess, but we believe that you do. We believe that you take difficult circumstances and turn them into good. We believe that you strengthen faith in the midst of hardship. And we believe, we honestly believe that you are a good God. God, may our lives reflect that goodness. May they reflect you working and moving in us. We ask this in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.